It's Tuesday, April the 27th, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast exploring social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution and the moderator of today's show. That means I have the privilege of introducing the stars of our show, three Hoover Institution senior fellows we jokingly refer to as the Good Fellows. We begin with John Cochran, a.k.a. the Grumpy Economist. John is also the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hello, John. Hi, everybody. Second Good Fellows, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, former Presidential National Security Advisor, as well as the Hoover Institution's Fawad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. Hello, H.R. Hi, Bill, John, Neil, and our special guest. Great to be with you. And our third Good Fellow is Neil Ferguson, the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil is, of course, a renowned historian and author. He has a book out next week, the title Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe, Beat the Smart Kids and Get It Order. You can order it now. It's out May the 4th. Neil, how does it feel to be facing impending doom? Doom is coming. That's my uh, my slogan these days. And uh, uh, I never thought I'd look forward to doom. But uh, yeah, that's how I'm feeling. And I'm looking forward to this show too. Very good. So gentlemen, the topic today is going to be immigration. We want to talk about who comes to America, who wants to come to America, and what would be a sensible immigration policy. And we have a very good guest lined up for this, our guest today being Rehan Salam. Uh, Rehan Salam is the president of the Manhattan Institute. Previously, he was the executive editor of National Review. Currently, he's a contributing editor at the Atlantic, National Affairs, and National Review. He's also the author of the 2018 book, Melting Pot or Civil War, A Son of Immigrants Makes the Case Against Open Borders. Rehan, welcome to Goodfellows. Thanks for having me. So a lot to get into in limited amount of time. Let me start with this question. We look at what's going on in the southern border, Rehan, uh, so-called migrant encounters. That's what uh, Department of Homeland Security calls it, DHS. Uh, migrant encounters were up 71% from February to March. That's about 172,000 individuals trying to get into the U.S., 19,000 of whom are unaccompanied children. Uh, those March boarding crossings were the highest level in 15 years. There are 11.4 million unauthorized immigrants already living in the U.S. as of January 2018, roughly on for 2015. Uh, to those who are trying to make sense of what is going on at the southern border, Ray Hunt, what would you tell them? The big picture is that uh, we oftentimes try to draw hard and fast connections. We try to draw these clear boundaries between whether or not someone is an economic migrant or a humanitarian migrant. And my sense is that it's better to think of migrants, like all people, as you know, people who are conscientious, they have needs, they have families, uh, they have economic objectives they're hoping to pursue, they have concerns, they have fears. And so they have a strong incentive to gather knowledge. Uh, they have strong incentives to figure out how is it that I can better my life and the life of my family. And so part of what you're doing is responding to push factors, uh, whether it's violent crime, whether it's a natural disaster, but you're also very sensitive to the context of reception you're very sensitive to the rules that are either welcoming you to or barring you from access to an opportunity-rich locale. So when you're looking at what you're seeing in Central America right now, it's not that dissimilar from what you saw Europe experience in 2015. Hmm. Uh, you know, if you're looking at Europe in 2015, you had this massive migrant wave. Now, some of it was in response to violent conflict in Syria in Iraq, et cetera. But you also saw migrants coming from Bangladesh. You saw migrants coming from the Maghreb. Now, how was that? Was it because suddenly poverty spiked? Was it because these places that were always somewhat violent became drastically more violent? 
No, part of it's because you had the shock to the system and basically the borders became somewhat more permeable in that moment. Similarly, when you're looking at Central America, you know, these are places that have been poor for a really, really long time. If you're looking at the violent crime situation, for example, in some ways it's actually somewhat better than it was uh, in earlier periods of time. Uh, you know, that varies from place to place, of course, but what you're really looking at is this kind of combination of things. People are sharing information through their networks. They are looking at whether or not the rules, whether or not the context of reception is changing. And I believe that there are a lot of people who see the shift from the Trump administration to the Biden administration and see basically a modicum of opportunity there. Now, I don't want to oversimplify things. That's right. not to say that people don't have good, valid humanitarian reasons to want to better their lives. People always do. But it's just that you know migrants are people. They are creative. They are industrious. Uh, you know, like anyone else, and they are going to respond to changing incentives. As just for facts to help our listeners on the southern border. Um, to, so this seems to be related to the asylum system. Um, as you say, people have many different motives. Um, but so what are the rules that matter? I, th I think we all have a sense of the rules are profoundly screwed up. Um, how much uh, just one, you know, is Asylum seekers, a large fraction of people coming in. Is there any legal way for people to come in? Why do people who um, uh, need asylum, why don't they stop and ask for asylum in Mexico? Just sort of the obvious parts of the rules and, and the size of the problem that people like you who know stuff like this know and that people who read the newspaper might not be so familiar with. Well, humanitarian migration has always been part of the mix of immigrant inflows. And you have different categories. You have refugee resettlement, which is a more formal process. Uh, and then you have uh, basically people claiming asylum where there's a lot of ambiguity to the system. So there are formal channels that one goes through, but there's also the fact that our asylum system, uh, basically uh, that machinery has limited resources. So if that machinery is overwhelmed at any given time, you know. Traditionally, what would happen is you come, you're given a court date, but then you're allowed to enter the country and you have a kind of quasi legal status uh, in which you won't necessarily be immediately removed. Uh, and so part of the dynamic that's changed is that traditionally the flow for migrants, uh, you saw a lot of people enter as unauthorized migrants. You saw a lot of uh, men who would come in, for example. And then part of the change is that you have this channel that was this kind of quasi legal channel in which it wasn't single men who had come, but it was family units that would come, uh, you know, partly because the ability to accommodate those family units, the ability to kind of contain that through the existing legal machinery was somewhat limited. The Trump administration tried to address that. They tried to embrace a kind of deterrence approach. And they also tried to craft uh, an agreement with the Mexican government and also other governments in Central America in order to kind of mitigate that flow. Uh, and they embraced some tactics that were you know, pretty coercive and that uh, generated a pretty serious backlash domestically. Uh, but the kind of big picture problem is that when you're looking at trying to assess asylum claims, you need to have bodies. You need to have some number of judges. You need to have some kind of institutional capacity that's there that isn't always responsive to the demand, to the kind of flow that's coming over the border. Uh, and, right. and that's a big part of the challenge we're facing now. So we're spending $6 trillion on what knows else. It would seem a few more immigration judges would be easy. But um, is there a, let me just bluntly, is there a legal way? Suppose you're in, you live in Honduras or Ecuador and you want to move to the US because 
you want a better opportunity, you want to work hard, pay taxes, start a new life here. My impression is there's no legal way to do it. So we we have to do this via the asylum system, which kind of perverts the asylum system. Is that a false impression? Well, uh, you know, normative question of whether we have to do X, Y, or Z, right? But if you're looking at it from the perspective of the migrant, if you are a migrant and you're seeking a migration opportunity through a legal pathway, you're absolutely right. It is very tightly constrained. Uh, and, you know, unauthorized migration was one path you could take. A- and you could argue that, you know, given the way that we approach enforcement, you could even argue that uh, it is this kind of, how do you say, um, ex-ante selection mechanism, right? Uh, you know, in which you're essentially saying, we are going to tolerate your unlawful presence unless you do something that's particularly egregious. And we could, you know, debate what that happens to be. So you could say that that's a kind of informal pathway that's existed, not a legal pathway of the kind you have in mind. If you are someone, even if you're someone who is skilled, even if you're someone who has studied at a US university, the pathways are very constrained. They're oftentimes very confusing uh, to the point of being incoherent uh, because this is not something that was a product of design. This is a product of an iterative process, the product of many different legislative initiatives and also administrative decisions that have made that have been made over time. There's a huge amount of executive authority here um, you know, to the point where you could have a violent lurch between what counts as a kind of legal admissions policy from one administration to the next. So so again, the short answer to your question is, um, if you wanted a very transparent, clear, simple pathway into the United States, you don't really have it. Um, You know, the way to get in is not necessarily, you know, master the English language, acquire these skills in this predictable pathway. You'd be better off marrying a US citizen, even then, there's a lot of ambiguity and confusion that's there, uh, depending on the circumstances. If you're looking at people who uh, entered the country unlawfully, there is a big difference between whether you enter the country unlawfully with inspection, that is if you're a visa overstayer or without inspection. So the arbitrariness of our immigration system is maddening, uh, and it's something that is justifiably a big source of frustration. Maybe I could jump in as the immigrant uh, on the show, uh, a, legal, a legal immigrant, I hasten to add, because my experience bears out quite a lot that Rehan's just said. It took me a long time to become a US citizen, which I did a couple of years ago uh, after a bunch of, uh, of visas and then a green card. And it was an expensive process uh, that required me to engage specialist lawyers, uh, as well as a time-consuming process. But I'm not sure that that's all bad. I don't think it should be easy uh, to become an American. And in fact, precisely because it was quite challenging and ultimately I had to pass a test, uh, a citizenship test, which is not a bad uh, civics course in its own right. When I came to become a citizen. It felt very meaningful. And I know that my wife had the same experience. Uh, I come from the UK, as you can tell from my funny accent. Ayan, uh, originally from Somalia via the Netherlands. And we've we've both gone through this process. And, and I noticed that those who've gone through the process of becoming citizens legally uh, don't feel particularly well disposed towards those people uh, who have sought to become Americans or at least to become residents of the United States illegally. 
we have a Mexican uh, born housekeeper who works for us, whose whose views on the subject of immigration are as as Trumpish as anything I've ever heard. So I think it's really important right at the beginning of this conversation to to draw this line clearly and say there's a massive difference between the the legal uh, path to becoming an American, which is uh, part and parcel of this country's uh, heritage, and and the fundamental and and enduring problem of of illegal uh, immigration. Because I, I often notice that the the distinction gets lost in discussion and it and we end up having heated and ultimately inconclusive discussions about immigration americans should be in favor of legal immigration if you're against legal immigration you don't understand how this country works uh, for example the foreign-born proportion of the population still hasn't regained its uh, late 19th century peak when it was what, 14 or 15%, we're close to that. We're probably very nearly there now. But, but that's really what this country was based on. The problem are the pathologies that arise from the illegal immigration and the anomalies that illegal immigration has created. And you talked about this brilliantly in your book, Rehan. I mean, the problem is that a lot of people are here illegally and they've been here illegally for a long time. And we at some point have to uh, come to terms with that. And one of the proposals you made in, in Melting Pot was, yeah, we just need to, to have some kind of amnesty for the illegal immigrants. But that can't become a kind of permanent feature of the system. This has to be a, a kind of drawing of the line. Explain a bit how that would work, because I think this is one of the most controversial issues uh, of all. There are many different approaches uh, to take. And uh, basically the one that I advance in the book is the idea of having something that's tied to a registry date, for example, uh, you know, having spent some number of years in the country, also just being sensitive to relationships. If you look at the unauthorized population in the United States right now, the long resident unauthorized population, you have a huge share of people who have US citizen children, you have a large number who actually have US citizen spouses, yet because they enter the country without inspection are not eligible in the way that those who are visa overstayers are. Uh, you have all of these different subtleties, you know, many of whom are, are potentially quite sympathetic. But I think the political challenge here is that there are many people whose objection to granting legal status is categorical. That is, you know, the, the kind of stereotype is that people object to amnesty uh, out of racism, for example, out of some hostility to the foreign born. But, you know, uh, when you look at a lot of the survey data, it really does seem as though people are utterly indifferent to the ethnic provenance. They're, they're even indifferent to income. In fact, in some ways, they're more sympathetic to someone with a strong accent than someone who does not have a strong accent because the person with a strong accent is making an effort. The views are not actually what people think. People are very, very concerned about fairness. They're very concerned about people jumping the queue. And while there is broad support for some kind of legal status, some kind of amnesty, there is a very firm, I would say, third of the population that's very resistant to that idea. And needless to say, that group is very heavily represented in the center-right coalition, which has made the politics very difficult here. The other element of this is how do you approach future flows? And the classic argument that you know, even uh, you know, people who served in the Clinton and Obama administrations had embraced, which has now become deeply unfashionable on the left, is the idea that if you adopt some kind of amnesty now, you would need resolute enforcement 
on the back end against recent violators. So the classic argument critics of amnesty make, and it's an argument I'm not unsympathetic to, but is that, aha, you're incentivizing further unauthorized migration. The argument about resolute enforcement is that it makes a much bigger difference to you if the person from your village who came to the United States attempting to overstay a visa, you know, a year ago is turned back than what happens to someone who left your village 20 years ago. So the idea is that that kind of resolute enforcement is extremely meaningful, but that kind of resolute enforcement, even of recent violators, has recently become stigmatized. Uh, you know, part of that's a thermostatic reaction to the Trump presidency. There are a lot of different things to that. Part of it's the idea that, you know, many immigrant advocacy organizations, they feel like they've already made so many concessions. You know, why on earth should we give a single additional inch to the restrictionist side? Because their view is that the restrictionists have been running the table. Needless to say, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that perspective, but that's where they're coming from right now. They want to take a much more maximal position. But to me, that idea of resolute enforcement against recent violators is the way to basically restore a sense of control over the system. The idea that it's a lawful functioning system, and that would be very meaningful for changing the politics. Uh, so HR, the last time this country took a real serious cut at immigration reform would be 1986. Uh, you would have been, I think, a second lieutenant in the army perhaps at that time. Um, and the IRCA uh, plan that was passed in 1986 was very simple. There was amnesty if you came into the country before 1982, and also a promise of enforcement on uh, workplaces, uh, which the latter of which didn't materialize. And that's part of the, uh, the reluctance to go back down the amnesty path. But HR, as you look at immigration reform and the question of who should come to the country, who would you like to see come to the country? Well, you know, I was going to ask Rayhan this, this uh, same question. What can be done on the legal immigration side? Uh, that that would complement this kind of the kind of uh, greater enforcement that would that would uh, that would be associated with some degree of path to citizenship for those who are already here illegally. You know, I'll tell you, I've I've, I've had the best experiences you can imagine with immigrants because some of our most patriotic immigrants come into the armed forces of the United States, and they serve with tremendous distinction. I served with many of them in combat. My six foot five Sudanese uh, interpreter in Iraq, uh, who's brilliant and, and who was, uh, uh, who was educated exquisitely uh, in his home country, uh, was a tremendous asset to me. He took the name Adams, uh, by the way, for one of our founders. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I, I really think that, that immigration obviously is one of the great strengths of our nation. And it's just so sad that this tremendous opportunity is missed. Uh, associated with immigration reform, uh, along the, along with the, the lines of what Ryan has has uh, has has, uh, has suggested. So, so that I guess that's my question: is how do we take full advantage of this great strength? You know, when, whenever somebody comes to me, Rayhan, with this, this sort of moral equivalency of, you know, gosh, don't, aren't we really seeing some of our freedoms evaporate here in the United States? And and, and makes a, an, an argument equivalent to, to Chinese Communist Party or something crazy. I say, hey, how many people are trying to immigrate, you know, to China right now? And so I, I think this ought to be a great source of pride for us. Uh, but I do feel it's a missed opportunity. From from that perspective, what what, what do you recommend? What what can we do? And and what's your assessment of of the feasibility, right? Of of uh, of taking advantage of what should be one of our greatest competitive advantages. 
there's a, there's a lot here. And so, you know, when you ask a question like that, you know, one thought is what happens in an utterly ideal world where my magic wand doesn't just change immigration policy, but also changes the political economy of the United States in the year 2021. Um, you know, there are many different moving pieces that, you know, kind of would shape the answer to that question. I guess my big picture thought is that, you know, I would generally like a system that is more transparent, that's more coherent, and that basically offers people um, a pathway that says this, here are things that reliably are associated with success, with some modicum of economic independence in the society. Uh, you know, it's an evidence-based approach. Uh, and so we are going to use those things as benchmarks in terms of prioritizing who gets and when. Now, there's a debate about whether we should have any limits whatsoever. You know, my own view is that some limits are appropriate. Um, I also believe that, uh, you know, there's much more to say here, uh, you know, about the way that business models adapt in response to the labor available, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, my inclination would be to have a relatively generous policy in which we are basically emphasizing the fact that, you know, we as a country have a grand strategy. Uh, scale matters. If we want to be a leading um, innovation superpower, for example, scale matters in terms of the number of people who have the kind of creative potential to kind of make a meaningful contribution there. By the way, plenty of low-skill people have immense potential too, but it happens that there's some things that, given the state of the country right now, are a more reliable pathway to economic independence. One of the reasons I'm so excited about the idea of moving to a more transparent skills-based system is not that I think that, you know, people with more modest skills can't make a contribution. It's that having a more transparent, coherent skills-based system can actually generate spillover benefits for the world as a whole. So in Fiji, some decades ago, uh, they had uh, a violent uh, military coup which was incredibly threatening to the 40% or so part of the population that was not indigenous, that was chiefly of South Asian origin. So what happened is that, you know, before that, the indigenous population and the South Asian population had very similar levels of educational attainment. After you had that big threat, a very dramatic change happened. The South Asian population dramatically increased their educational attainment. However, they did it in a pretty focused and specific way. They did it in such a way that they could gain points on Australia and New Zealand's skills-based immigration systems, okay? Now, from one vantage point, you could say, gosh, that's awfully inefficient, but that's what happened. And then you had a number of those South Asian Fijians move to Australia, move to New Zealand, moved to Canada to settle there. You also had a lot of people who gained those skills and stayed in Fiji and actually built an IT industry in Fiji that is now a major economic contributor. So when I think about US immigration policy, I absolutely think about what is best for the United States, what is going to be legitimate for the larger American population. And when I think about that, I think that is there a room for humanitarian immigration? Absolutely, there's room for that. But when it comes to mainstream immigration, I think the emphasis on people who will be able to support themselves is not unreasonable. That's why something like the public charge doctrine, which has become very controversial, the idea that we want to assess whether or not you have skills that would ensure that you will not be reliant permanently on SNAP benefits, on Medicaid, et cetera. By the way, that doesn't make you a bad person, but it makes sense to me to say there's a distinction between humanitarian migrants and those we expect to be self-sufficient and to make a net fiscal contribution. That's very bloodless language, but I don't think it's ridiculous when we're having some limits 
The problem that we have now is that we blur those different categories together. Yeah, absolutely. We, we don't have guardrails. We don't have kind of coherent pathways that allow you to demonstrate, even with family-based immigration, for example, which is about two-thirds in, in normal non-COVID times, right? With family-sponsored migration, you have huge backlogs because we also have these kind of per-country quotas and, and what have you. So you can actually move up the queue if you have a job offer in the United States, if you master the language. It's very bizarre. You have this queue that's completely arbitrary. You can't do things that say, hey, I'm doing things that will allow me to achieve success, allow me to achieve some modicum of self-sufficiency in the United States. So what I would want to do is just say, Let's acknowledge this place of humanitarian. Let's also say that for those people who are going to support themselves, let's do it in an evidence-based, thoughtful way. That would be the starting point for me. Yeah, I think I think those are really, really great points. And I would also point out that more immigrants from Fiji to the United States would help out USA Rugby as well. Hey, the, the, the other, hey, the, the, uh, the, the, the other, the other point I would just make though is under the special benefit parole uh, immigration. Uh, path as well. There is that kind of rigor, right? Especially on the side of the sponsor, you know, that, 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 that allows in this case, the department of Homeland security and others to, you know, to, as well as the, the state department, but mostly uh, Homeland security to, you know, to, to assess the degree to which this family is going to have, you know, kind of a, a viable and, and, and solid landing uh, in, in the United States. So, I mean, I think there are procedures in place that could be applied more broadly, you know, ac across, uh, ac across, uh, you know, any legislation, any remedy that we could come up with that would that would clarify these different categories, certainly, uh, and then and then allow us to have a much more rational policy. I, I think we're we're all in agreement uh, on something sensible, but actually quite radical. If you state it out loud, which is what the U.S. We want economic migrants. In fact, the primary migrants to the U.S. should be economic migrants as migrants, my, my ancestors were and probably wouldn't be allowed in under current laws. Uh, we want people who will come to the US, work hard, build businesses, hire other Americans, pay taxes, pay off our national debt. It's exactly who we want in. Uh, whether And we can talk about whether the selection scheme is bureaucratic based on skills or posting a bond on the border as uh, Gary Becker wants. You know, we're now into the two o'clock in the morning bull session at, at the Manhattan Institute about exactly how you get this done. But this exactly is exactly where I want to be. But please. Yeah, quite. <laughs> well, Hoover's pretty good, too. Uh, quite <laughs> radical by. So I want to go back a little bit and, and we should emphasize how completely screwed up the current system is. I want to fight a little bit with uh, Neil on this. You know, there's this common thing. Oh, well, legal immigrants are good. The illegal immigrants are bad, but the law is an ass, <laughs> and that's the basic problem right now. Uh, if Neil had, if, if you had come from Colombia, Neil, you wouldn't be have been allowed. The answer would have just been no. Not go through a bunch of procedures. Just no, you may not come, or wait in a lottery that you know you might get to come when you're 90 years old or something of the sort. There is no legal pathway. Moreover, um, you know our. So we, I think we talked about amnesty too quickly. Amnesty has to be part about it. When you, when you think of America, it is shameful that, what is it, 14 million people live among us, work among us, raise their children among us, and don't have legal rights. We really complain when other, children, other countries don't give people legal rights who are there for years and years, and we're doing it ourselves. 
But as you point, you know, the usual thing is, well, amnesty and then clamp down. But you can't clamp down on a legal system that is completely dysfunctional. So I think reform first, uh, then amnesty, then uh, clamp down on, on the transparent, rules-based, fair, it actually works, is, is the only uh, serious way to go forward. John, even if the laws are an ass, which uh, it tends to be historically, uh, it still needs to be enforced. Uh, otherwise, the rule of law has no We meaning. cannot enforce our current law. You're going to kick out 14 million people. What we have is a system, it's what America likes to pretend to do. Oh, we're going to pretend not to let people in, but these people have to come. Your, your garden isn't going to get gardened if they don't come. Your, your house isn't going to get built if they don't come. Your vegetables aren't going to get picked. So we let them come illegally, and then we kind of tolerate them and don't pay attention to it. They have horrible rights. They're abused by their employers, but we're, but we're not willing to actually enforce that law. The 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 Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas uh, said that U.S. immigration and customs enforcement will no longer impose fines on people who are in the United States illegally, who have been ordered by a judge to leave the country and who refuse to go. That seems to me uh, to be uh, a bridge too far, even for a libertarian like you, John. Uh, And it also, of course, sends uh, a clear signal that... uh, the rules have fundamentally changed and the borders open if you can get across it. I think we should focus attention on the, I'm going to be HR for a little bit, on the improvements we could make, on the people we should let in. I'm I'm shocked that the people who helped our military in Afghanistan and Iraq aren't allowed in, for example. We don't let in computer programmers from India. We, uh, and in fact, a lot of businesses are moving abroad because they, they can't get, get uh, people to come in. When the opportunities for immigration are, are the ones. Also, the, the, uh, the current system, you, you said two thirds are family. Now, wait a minute, that means you're letting two thirds of the people who are coming in are joining somebody who's working here, but they themselves are not like are not by that selection likely to be the most productive ones. Europe has a horrible problem. and. We, we mentioned it a little bit earlier that the U.S. was, under the illegal regime, mostly having single men come in. Single men walking across the border to be illegal workers is a horrible thing to do, and that's exactly what's causing trouble in Europe. So the selection that our current wink-wink, nudge-nudge system, is, and, and I completely agree with you, the way it isn't being, the way it's kind of not being enforced once you're here, it leads to exactly the kinds of people and and it doesn't encourage them to get ahead and build things in America. So let's fix the darn. Just, well, a couple of broad things I want to raise. Uh, One is that uh, I think Neil raises an important point, which is that when you're looking at that unauthorized population, it is a very differentiated population in which there are many people who, for example, you know, you have the DACA population, you have the broader DACA eligible population, you have the uh, deferred enforced departure population. You have many components of this population that have some kind of uh, quasi-legal status. Then you have the fact that across the 50 states, there are many very different legal regimes uh, regarding whether or not being unauthorized is actually meaningful for you. So I'd say that uh, there's some truth to this idea that there are many people who are unauthorized, but who, you know, essentially are, are tolerated and more than tolerated. In New York State, where I'm based, uh, there's actually been uh, a big tax increase proposed to finance um, 
basically giving the equivalent of the cash transfers that were given to U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents to unauthorized residents, uh, you know, but doing it through the uh, good graces of New York State rather than the federal government. So, so I think that, you know, yes, there's a shadow system. It's far from ideal. But part of what's concerning is that it is so arbitrary. It's so tied to not just the state, but also your county. Who is the sheriff of your county this year? So there, that is one thing that is part of the kind of patchwork of immigration enforcement in the country right now. Uh, another thing that I think is, is worth noting is that, uh, you know, when you tell this kind of larger, you know, kind of classical liberal story about migration, the human potential, the idea that we don't want a kind of central planning system. One of the difficulties here is that U.S. political economy is a moving target. When you think about the relative success of the United States in incorporating people, including low-skilled people, into our labor market versus Europe, this was to some degree a product of unique aspects of our labor market. The fact that it was not especially dirigiste. The fact that you know, John and I might disagree a little bit on the business model question. You know, my thing is that depending on the labor market regulations are in place, you're going to grow fruits and vegetables in a different way. You're going to do it in a capital intensive way or a labor intensive way, right? So, so it's not just a matter of, you know, you're not going to have vegetables or maybe you'll import more vegetables, et cetera. These things are plastic to some degree. You know, you could have a lot of deadweight loss from imposing those regulations. But again, business models can respond to that. But the European approach was one where you have a and I'm speaking in broad generalizations, you have a stringently regulated labor market, you have active labor market policies, you oftentimes have pretty high labor force participation for the country as a whole, but that's through a lot of government intervention that be can be quite heavy handed. You have a lot of redistribution. You also have broad based consumption taxation, yada, yada, yada. You attract different kinds of migrants when you have that kind of political economic regime. And part of what's happening now is that here in the United States, we're changing the nature of our labor market. We are changing the regulations surrounding it. We are making it less tractable to create a low-skill labor-intensive business model. So a lot of the success story of the past is not necessarily something you can project into the future. We now have a country in which you have a lot of thoughtful people on the center left who believe that it is a grave insult for anyone to support themselves and their family uh, on the minimum wage. Now, the great genius of low-skill immigration in the past has been that you take people for whom that labor market opportunity in a higher wage, higher productivity society is very attractive to them, even if it's not necessarily attractive to someone who is a native-born member of that society, right? But again, you're raising the floor, to put it charitably, in ways that actually make those labor markets, that make that incorporation strategy a lot less viable. So I think that there are a lot of people I will describe as immigration idealists, particularly on the libertarian right, who kind of think, okay, well, let's keep immigration policy fixed with my moral ethical lodestar, even as every single other thing about our labor market, every other thing about how we redistribute, every other thing about our tax system changes quite dramatically, um, you know, to move it more in that dirigiste direction. And then the idea is that, oh, well, everything will work itself out. Or maybe it will create some massive pressures that will force a change to this move in a more dirigiste direction. I'm not sure that's true. So that's kind of one thing to throw out there. The other thing, and I think this is a bit in keeping with some of Neil's observations from before, a lot of people, you know, and John was evoking this when he was talking about his ancestors who were immigrants, 
we'll talk about this idea that there's been this kind of continuity in our immigration policies. Maybe we see the 1920s as the battle days. You have this restrictionist period, but you know, broad continuity. We were pretty open, you know, and we should continue to be pretty open. So one big discontinuity is looking at immigrant inflows relative to native births. When you look at the late 19th century, when you look at the 19 teens, right up until the immigration restriction of the 20s, you had huge inflows. You also had much, much, much higher levels of native births, right? And that affects the cultural sensibility. That affects how people respond politically, because when you have very low native birth rates, and even if you don't have really high immigrant inflows, and by historical standards, our immigrant inflows right now are not unusually high, what you have is hyper-ethnic change. So when you have immigrants who come and they intermarry with the kind of, you know, old stock population, that becomes something where you form relationships. You know, my wife, for example, uh, you know, she's native born, her parents were native born, et cetera. My parents are immigrants. You know, you have that kind of intermingling. You have that kind of cultural crossover that makes people feel potentially a bit more relaxed about migration. When you have hyper-ethnic change, you have this sharp generational dynamic in which people of older generations don't have ties to the newcomers and people in younger generations, you know, kind of have markedly different backgrounds. This also plays out in economic discourse as well and a variety of other things. So I'm not saying that's good or bad, but that is why when you're looking at this through the kind of lens that Neil does, let's look at this through a cultural lens. Let's look at this through a historical lens. Why is this unusual when immigrant inflows aren't actually that high by the standards of other market democracies or by US history? It's because of that, some would say imbalance. If you had much higher native birth rates right now, if you had the same native birth rates uh, from the baby boom era to the present, the immigrant inflows we've had would mean a foreign born population of around five or 6% of the total population as opposed to 13%. It's a dramatic difference. That collapse in native birth rates is why I would argue we're having this agita, we're having this anxiety about immigration right now. Can I add a couple of points to that from my historian's vantage point? I think it's hugely important to recognize, uh, and too few politicians' speeches do this, that there were periods of strict immigration control uh, in the United States. And that really from the early 1880s onwards, right the way through, uh, till the 1980s, uh, actually immigration was uh, was limited. Uh, and, and one very important counterfactual, which comes to mind sitting here in California, is how different the country uh, would look today if there hadn't been strict restriction on Chinese immigration from, from 1882 onwards. Sometimes we tell the story of American immigration as if it's just always been uh, an inward flow, but that flow was really drastically reduced in the mid 20th century uh, and only really revived uh, relatively recently in my lifetime. The second point I'd make is something that I wrote about in a book called The War of the World. One of the more disturbing features of European uh, history and, and history, I think, also elsewhere, is that the process you describe, Rehan, the process of what used to be called miscegenation of intermarriage. Uh, might you might expect that to have good consequences, and I guess the melting pot idea is partly about that. But there's some reason to doubt that. It, it seems, looking back at the 20th century and the 19th century in the United States, that actually anxiety about intermarriage across ethnic or racial lines uh, is part of what propels uh, radical right-wing politics. Uh, it's a funny thing that we would we would assume. Let's 
take the case of the most extreme racist uh, policy of all time, the Third Reich, you would assume uh, that uh, what happened in Germany must have had something to do with a really significant increase in immigration uh, prior to the 1930s, but that's not the case. And the German Jewish population was actually very small, much smaller in Germany than it was elsewhere. Uh, but what did happen in the 1900s and the 1920s was a great increase in intermarriage, uh, to the point that one in every two marriages involving a Jew in 1920s Germany was to a non-Jew. Uh, and, and yet, if you look at the power of uh, Hitler's ideology, right at the center of it, read Mein Kampf, is this really crazy critique of, of miscegenation, ideas that actually were imported from uh, the American uh, debate on race in the 19th century. I think this is a really interesting problem that nobody quite wants to talk about, but as, uh, as we're both in mixed race marriages, we probably should acknowledge uh, that this doesn't actually necessarily lead uh, on a smooth path to uh, a more integrated society. I wish it would. Well, I, hey, Neil, I just say, as, uh, Rahan, as you answer that question, I think it's important maybe to observe that that maybe uh, mixed race marriages do fuel uh, sort of racist sentiment on, on you know a, 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 on a far extreme end. But I would hope that that percentage is getting much much smaller than it was at least in the 19th century, Neil. So. Uh, you know, I, I I have a sense that there has been progress in in America in terms of not judging people by identity categories. You know, by I remember my it was it was quite controversial when when my my Catholic mother married my Presbyterian father, right? I mean, I think that we've we've come a long way. So, I, Rehan, I, I just as you answered Neil's point here, I just wondered if you might give a sense of change over time, because I, I am more hopeful that we've made progress. I don't think we're, you know, we're stuck uh, in, the, in the 19th century at the time when we severely limited Chinese immigration, uh, or maybe as, as, as recent as 1950s, right? When intermarriage of, you know, of different religions or mixed races was, uh, was looked at askance, by, you know, by, um, by a larger, much larger percentage of the population, I would argue. I, um, would suggest that when you're looking at interethnic marriage, there are a few things that work. One of them, as Neil was suggesting, is that when you've had lower levels of ethnic replenishment, that's typically when you have more interethnic marriage, for better or for worse. That's not to say, therefore, we should have a shutdown or anything like that. I wouldn't argue that. But basically, when the community is being replenished, uh, then you know, typically people will marry endogamously, you know, within their networks. It's oftentimes when there's a shortage of available partners within that kind of you know kind of close-in network that you see um, you know intermarriage levels increasing. Uh, you also see this kind of fascinating phenomenon. So compare Canada and the United States. Black non-black intermarriage in the United States is increasing, but it's much lower than it is in Canada. Uh, if you look at Asian non-Asian intermarriage, it's much higher in the United States than in Canada. You know, why would that be true? Part of it is, you know, what's known as the kind of macro structural hypothesis, simply that it's the different size of the different groups. 
If you look at uh, people of African origin in Canada, they're not particularly high income relative to their US counterparts. It's just that it's a somewhat smaller group. So there are a lot of these kind of subtleties here. And you know, again, when you have lots of replenishment, it's not just something that's creating more available marriage partners. It also tends to reinforce ethnic identity uh, because then there becomes a conversation. You know, If you're a third generation person, let's say Mexican origin or Bangladeshi origin, the constant arrival of new people, they set the boundaries for what constitutes an authentic member of the group. Uh, so, you know, again, individuals might choose they're going to defect from that group identity or not. You see a lot of attenuation of ethnic ties. You see a lot of ethnic attrition. You know, people have one Mexican origin grandparent, let's say, who don't necessarily identify as Hispanic. That's a quite common phenomenon as the generations go on. But yeah, I mean, big picture, I think that there's a lot of good news uh, in terms of uh, amalgamation, intermarriage, uh, more genuine friendships across ethnic boundaries. But I'd also say that in our country, there's a real distinction between um, Black Americans and non-Black Americans on that front. Even if you look at people of mixed origin, people of mixed origin who are, let's say, white Asian or white Latin, uh, as opposed to uh, people who are white Black, have very, very different experiences, very different self-understandings. And one complication with immigration and our current ethnic politics is that we're in a moment right now, particularly in elite institutions, where ethnic identity is being foregrounded rather than celebrating the attenuation of those ties, uh, the formation of rich relationships, you actually have explicit racial preferences. Uh, you have a discourse in which it, it almost seems as though people are rewarded for identifying as members of victim categories, uh, in which people are encouraged to tell a story about themselves that's not a story of advancement and uplift uh, and progress, but rather one that is antagonistic to traditional American ideals. And that, by the way, is another thing that I think contributes to a lot of unease and suspicion about immigrant inflows from a lot of uh, old stock Americans. So I think that there, there is a lot of good news, HR, but also there is an ideological climate that I think is sharpening anxiety about ethnic change. Let me put that exactly the opposite. I mean, there is this common argument, which you sort of alluded to, if we need to restrict immigration to keep our society and our culture and our political tradition and so forth. Sorry, you lost that one in the public schools a long time ago. Um, if you if you want to, you know, keep America uh, pure that way. And in fact, uh, you know, immigrants seem to be less tolerant. Which, by the way, to be clear, is not my argument, but please, you're characterizing some other folks in the world, which, you know, you're welcome to do. Yeah, you know, we, we sort of alluded to that argument. I wanted to make sure that yeah. uh, that's that because uh, you know immigrants tend to be less tolerant of that of the crazy stuff in the universities uh, than the rest of us do. It's not obvious that uh, that that's the way to do it. I do think um, you you mentioned something earlier. Um, back to the practicalities um, that I think was an important point for if you want the the, the libertarian that's me. Um, but letting in you know Europe's great problem is. It lets in unskilled uh, people so long as they walk, which means it lets primarily in young single men. Then it uh, it makes its labor markets uh, very restricted. So they, you know, let's have a recipe for disaster. Let in young single men. Do not let them work. 
have labor markets where it's very hard to work otherwise, make them sit in a camp for a year and a half with other young single men, uh, don't encourage them to learn the language. And, and, you know, what happens is, of course, they end up on the very bottom of the very illegal markets. You know, my last trip to Italy, it was kind of sad to see um, scads of uh, young men alone from North Africa all selling stuff on, on the streets, but that's what they're reduced to because you can't get a, a legal job. Uh, so that is, you, you point to a great danger. I mean, we're in danger of doing that to our own less skilled populations, that if you make uh, if you make labor markets so tightly controlled, uh, then um, young people of, uh, of less skill and bad backgrounds can't, uh, get, you know, have to be perpetually uh, victim um, in, in the government's graces after that. Uh, so that does seem to be one of the big practic- practical problems. And of course, it says nothing about the majority of immigrants. We all want you know, high skill or medium skill immigrants. We still don't let in people who uh, would like to work and, and easily can work even within the legal labor market. But John, this is the thing that I think, uh, you know, is important for um, us to confront. We don't control the direction of political economy in this country, right? And if we are, whether we like it or not, at least for the medium term, at least for the foreseeable future, becoming more of a social market economy, becoming, you know, kind of moving in this kind of social democratic orientation, where essentially, you know, we're saying that we need unconditional benefits uh, for lower income people, where the discourse around redistribution is becoming less and less pragmatic and more and more cosmic about social justice. Basically, uh, here's a little example. Uh, you know, my parents are immigrants from Bangladesh, uh, and there is a big Bangladeshi immigrant community in New York City, uh, one that evolved through successive waves of immigration policy, by the way, interesting story in itself. But I was reading an article in a local newspaper that was quoting a number of Bangladeshi immigrants working with various activist groups uh, in the outer boroughs. And they were all talking about how, wow, I didn't realize that I should have a right against eviction and I should have a right to housing and what have you. It was fascinating. These are earnest people, <laughs> you know, kind of, you know, again, I grew up in this community who are the kind of people who are like, hey, you know, you run a business, you try to get ahead, oftentimes working in kind of semi-skilled, low-skilled trades. But now you have this massive nonprofit industrial complex, the mission of which is to basically entrench these people into this ideology in which they are victims, in which the idea of a free market and housing in which the idea of eviction is is actually a sign of grave racial injustice, uh, in which they're being incorporated into this kind of activist sensibility. Um, And, you know, so, so that's something that's happening at the kind of ideological cultural level. You know, that's not to say, you know, it should have bearing on immigration policy. It's something for us to think about. America is really changing. You know, America is changing in ways that I think all of us on this panel we wanted to change in different ways. We want to celebrate the spirit of enterprise and ambition and what have you. But again, we don't control that. So I think that uh, you know, for the partisans of a more permissive approach to immigration, we just need to confront the fact that um, you know we can be nostalgic. Uh, you know, we certainly know immigrants in our own lives who embrace that kind of stick to itiveness. You know, that kind of spirit. But again, you know, you now have a federal government that is saying that if your income falls below threshold X, you are a victim. If you do not have access to this suite of safety net benefits, you are a victim, regardless of how you enter the country, et cetera. That's a really different sensibility than you one you had even when you were debating IRCA in the mid-80s. And what I'm trying to say is that you're you're fearful that we're going to become Europe, that our immigration system is going to become European because we're going to increase increasingly have a European style of welfare, a European regulated labor market. Uh, and we're going to carry on as the Europeans 
have with uh, large-scale immigration. immigration and when immigration policy is about racial justice, when immigration policy is framed as being about racial justice or the United States apologizing for its being an imperial power, et cetera, rather than, hey, this is a positive thing under the right circumstances in which we're unleashing people's talent and potential. Those are radically different narratives. And I think I see a lot of people who have a more market-friendly sensibility making common cause with people who favor a permissive policy, not because they're champions of human freedom, but because they believe that it is what the United States owes the world uh, as a kind of apology for grave abuse X, Y, or Z. We can't control our political, ally- you know, I get that, but this is a subtlety that I think is an important thing to understand in understanding why there are good, decent, sensible people who do embrace restrictionism. They're not crazy. They're noticing real changes in the political correlation of forces at home. And, and that's not about immigrant voters, by the way. It's about the power of this victimhood narrative and how it changes incorporating people into our society. And respectfully, John, you know, when you talk about immigrants in the universities, uh, you know, yeah, there are people who keep their head down and who are kind of, you know, not into this kind of woke narrative. But there are a lot of ambitious people, uh, many people who are my peers first and second generation people who see that their means of ascent into the American elite is to embrace the victimhood grievance narrative. Uh, I don't think that you guys are all strangers to this, right? Uh, And so when that becomes the path to success, that becomes dicey for a society. I was gonna say that also, you know, one of the, the, the best way to access the great promise of America was through education. And, and it is our, in our educational institutions and in our schools really beginning in primary school, uh, certainly in secondary school, when children in, in many school districts across the country are indoctrinated with what I would say is a, a curriculum of at least a mild form of self-loathing, as you mentioned, in which America is the cause of all the ills of the, in the world, especially after 1945. Before that, it was maybe uh, due to imperialism, and now it's it's due to into into this uh, you know this this capitalist imperialism uh, interpretation, and 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 then also the, the, this is when where they're also inculcated with this idea that that we are categorized into identity categories, and that's how we judge each other, uh, and that victimhood is the new heroism, right? And 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 and, and, and to which everyone should aspire to to be a victim and but actually to succeed. And so I I just think that. Uh, the way to, the, the, this is so connected, Rehan, what you're talking about, the political economy, but also how we educate young people in, in this country. And, and sadly, I think the way we're educating young people is erecting barriers uh, to, to the great promise of this country. And, uh, and, and I think this is maybe, as you've talked about, you know, where our priorities should lie. Maybe this is one of the top priorities. But I want to, this is not a problem of uh, ideology. It's a problem of budgets. And it's not a problem for us. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a fundamental problem for the, the extreme left that's in charge. If your view of the world is that uh, a large fraction of the population should simply receive government checks and stay home, uh, and your view is also that the borders should be completely open and anybody else who wants to come from the world can come to us, can't work legally, but can stay home and receive that same check, you're going to soon discover that you've run out of other people's money to spend. And they'll discover that rather, and that that's the central, uh, it's a central paradox that is, you know, I think they're facing uh, sooner sooner rather than later. So, Rayhan, we have about a few minutes left in the show, so I'd like to wind it down this way. Could you give us one fix that you'd like to make to the legal side of the immigration question, and then maybe one piece of advice for Kamala Harris, who has the unfortunate task of trying to make sense of the southern border, and I'd like each of the good fellows to chip in with one immigration fix they'd like to see. 
Go ahead, Rehan. Uh, so uh, one idea that I find very appealing, um, you know, I feel like I'm torn between the sense that there is this kind of complicated cultural dynamic. We need to be sensitive to it. We need to have a legitimate political solution. And also the fact that, you know, we are a great power and immigration can be a great asset for us. So, so how do you kind of reconcile these things? One idea that I find very appealing is the idea of creating a blended category. Uh, you know, you have the employment-based categories that are a bit of a mess. I'd like to clean them up. I'd like to make them more transparent and coherent and predictable. You have the family-based categories, but I think there's room for taking a lot of those family preference visas, visas where you have huge wait times and changing that category so that it's a hybrid category where it can be a category for family preference, but also where skills can move you up the line. I think this would be something that would be very politically popular. It would be a modest change. It would not represent a radical change in numbers. It would be more incremental than radical. But I think that it's something that would push us in the direction of a much more attractive, coherent system. Okay. HR, your thoughts? Hey, I just wish we'd talk more about who we want in the country in, in, instead of who we don't we don't want, and, and really emphasize that, that if if people who want to come to to this country share our principles, who share our commitment to free speech and freedom of assembly, who share our commitment to to rule of law and 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 uh, and tolerance of of uh, based on you know, religion, race, and sexual preference, and so forth, that that those are the people we we want if they believe that they can work hard and make. A better future for themselves and 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 their children. So, you know, I think we. Sh I just wish we would talk differently about immigration with a great deal more clarity, as we've discussed here, but also talk about who who we want and who we need in this country. Mm -hmm. John Cochran. Saw a good estimate recently of what the benefits of immigration would be if we had open borders. It would raise world GDP by 126 percent more than doubling by letting people move to places where their skills are more valuable. I think in the future, what are people gonna look back at us and say, how could they possibly have done it? And uh, are not letting people move across the planet may well be one of them. Uh, so I remain in favor of rules-based simple immigration, something like pay 10,000 at the border, stay out of trouble, uh, and you're welcome to come. We want people who are gonna come contribute to America. And the best way to stop illegal immigration is to make it legal. Uh, Neil Ferguson, I'll give you the last word. When I was uh, preparing for the citizenship test, I was asked, uh, I had to learn how many amendments there were to the constitution, how many seats in the House of Representatives who the representative uh, uh, of my district was in Congress, how many Supreme Court justices there were, who the chief justice was, what the voting age was, uh, uh, who the oldest member of the Constitutional Convention was, and who Susan B. Anthony was. And my recommendation uh, for uh, reform is that all native-born Americans be made to take this <laughs> same test, because I suspect most of them would flunk it. And it would be at least a step in the direction of restoring civics, something that has more or less died out in this country, if everybody had to take the test, maybe on their 17th birthday. Yes. That is a good idea. That's a wrap for this episode of Goodfellas, but don't despair. We'll be back next week with a new topic and a new conversation. In the meantime, keep those questions coming. We'd love to get them, and we're going to do a viewer mailbag somewhere down the road and maybe put a few questions. Let me just have the good fellows on and not a guest. 
To send your questions, very simple. Go to hoover.org forward slash askgoodfellows and write away to us. That address again, hoover.org forward slash askgoodfellows. Rayhan Salam's book, Melting Potter's Civil War, A Son of Immigrants, makes the case against open borders. Available on Amazon if you want to check it out. Recommend you do. I mentioned he's the president of the Manhattan Institute. I also recommend you check out their fine website. That is Manhattan slash institute.org. And Rayhan Salam, brave man that he is, is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Rayhan. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, our special guest today, Rehan Salam, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week when quite literally doom has arrived. Take care.